Sancharos Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cotain. And we are back discussing a real movie this time, one that we could actually watch and see, called No Regrets for Our Youth. Yeah, some would say we're watching the first good movie that Kurosawa has made. <laughs> uh, this movie feels a little different than the other ones. Coming out in 1946, this is his first post-war film, officially, I guess. At least the, for his own film. I think already we're getting a whole new quality of picture from him. Oh yeah, it's definitely like, it's just very obviously from the getting all the way to the end, a different caliber of filmmaking compared to all the other stuff that he's made so far. Maybe with the exception of the first Century of Sugata, which was like kind of a movie. <laughs> he's really stepping into his own here, and you can tell. Yeah, definitely. He says about this one that this is the first time he ever got true creative freedom and it was about what he wanted to say and what he wanted to put in the film. No other film had been like that for yet. I mean, he'd been doing propaganda movies and now, oh boy, are, are we uh, seeing a different side of the political spectrum? Yeah, no, it's a pretty fast uh, 180 in terms of politics. It's almost like now that he has freedom, he can say what he actually wants. Yeah, and what he wants to say, I'll admit, is a little muddled. I don't think he really has super well-developed political views, but he's definitely, you know, it's left. Yeah, I mean, he he's, is a kind of a self-described, not very political filmmaker, individualistic, cares about people's stories, not the overarching narratives of government and policy. He doesn't have answers. He has experiences. I don't think you go to him looking for a political thriller. Yeah, and that comes through in this movie, which is very good on the personal story. A little less clear in the politics, but it's fine overall. There's more gravitas, it's more monumental, it's just like more of a fully fleshed movie than anything we've seen from him so far. Absolutely, and while we're saying that he has more of this freedom, it should still be noted that uh, he doesn't have full 100% because of these new unions and everything. All those damn unions. They were actually developing a second movie that was very similar to this one because both of them were based on these incidents involving the Manchurian incident and Kyoto University and all that. So there was another movie that was a lot like this, and they forced Kurosawa's movie to change its script. So, like, the entire second half was, like, rewritten. And he says that even though the term no regrets for our whatever became a popular phrase, he has a lot of regrets about this one because the original script, he said, was so much better. Yeah, I believe that. The second half is weird. It is. It is. But it's cool. And yeah. I honestly, I think is very Kurosawa in its own way. For sure. I am curious what the original script would have been like. I didn't know that. That is uh, interesting to know. This film is kind of a historical film. At least it covers a historical event, but they say in the beginning, you know, it's completely fictionalized. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like a retelling. It's almost a period piece, but it's only a few years earlier. Yeah. But the Japan now, the post-war Japan, a few years ago is a completely different world. We talked about, you know, some of these new communist tendencies in the restructuring society of Japan at the time. Now we're kind of seeing this clash on like a higher level of, you know, the suppression of speech and rich liberal families. And I mean, yeah, we're going to cover a lot of stuff with this movie. So why don't we tell them what it's about? As Imperial Japan ramps up its war efforts, the government begins to clamp down on free speech. Professor Yagihara was relieved of his position at Kyoto Imperial University for his liberal thought. His daughter, Yuki Yagahara, is caught in a love triangle with two boys, Noge, a leftist student leader, and Itakawa, a more reserved student concerned with taking care of his mother. As student protests occur, Noge is imprisoned for several years and is forced to renounce his views. As years pass, Yuki moves to Tokyo and weds Noge, though he is eventually imprisoned and seemingly killed for being a spy. Heartbroken, she brings his ashes to Noge's peasant family. 
She helps Noge's mother plant an entire rice paddy, but the local peasants destroy it under suspicion of them being spies. Yuki, determined as ever after her father is reinstated post-war, begins to replant the destroyed crops and chooses the life of a rice farmer. One little thing in there, I added the word seemingly kill because it's very unclear in the movie as to whether or not he just dies in prison or if he gets Epsteined. Yeah, he absolutely gets Epsteined, but we don't see it. He definitely gets Epsteined, but we don't know. We can't confirm. All we have is we're told he died in his prison cell last night. Yeah, so that is the plot. Essentially, you know, it follows Yuki and her entanglement in the lives of Noge and Noge's family and Itakawa. And even though, like we said earlier, it's a historical film, he really uses that as a backdrop to explore this character. This is a political film in its subject matter, but it's not really a political film in its story. At its heart, it's a very individual film about her personal experience and not what he thinks the government should be like or what the answers to these political problems are. We're kind of seeing people across the spectrum, and in the book, it's more about how people deal with their issues rather than what the issues are and how to solve them. You know, Sanshiro Sugata, the first film, comes to mind a lot in this movie, not only because the actor is in it in another uh, amazing dang. role, <laughs> but also in the way that I think Yukie really does encapsulate the unmolded hero that Kurosawa likes to write as his protagonist. In the same way that Sanshiro was this brute who became a disciplined judo master, here's like a rich liberal girl who doesn't really care about politics, and then suddenly when it affects her, she starts to take more of a personal stand and live for herself rather than sit around and do nothing. Satsuka Hare, the amazing actress, starts this movie with Yukie as a very just like spoiled, obnoxious girl who's like, why do you care so much about politics, Noge? I'm gonna play my piano and I really couldn't give a shit about any of these free speech problems. How dare you care about free speech? When I say the politics of the movie are confusing, it seems like more should have been going on than just, we are against free speech, we are for free speech. <laughs> it, it very much so, it almost felt like a cancel culture film, <laughs> which is very relevant these days. Canceling the emperor. Well, I mean... Her father literally gets cancelled for his views. That's true. And then Noga gets the ultimate cancellation for the same views. <laughs> he gets snuffed out. And yeah, it should be said, like, this film covers about 10 years, which covering 10 years in two hours is definitely quite a uh, ambition for this film, which simultaneously feels too long and too short, I would say. Yeah, it's uh, nearly twice as long as the previous movie that we actually got to watch, The Men Who Try on the Tiger Still. Yeah, the previous real movie. It starts out in 1933, and depending on who you ask, people would call the Japanese invasion of China the actual start of World War II. I would agree with that, with the Second Sino-Japanese War that kind of rolls into World War II. Yeah, I don't know anything about this, so I'll take your word for it. But it covers 1933 through 19... It's unclear. It, like, it ends after the war is over. Yeah, so at least like 1945, 1944. Yeah. It's already a Japan that has gone and truly been overtaken and is in the midst of insane economic issues and social issues and Japan standing in the world under occupation and, you know, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan as a nation is dealing with so much uncharted political territory for a very conservative nation. And that's happening outside of the film. And then he's kind of exploring that a little bit through the, the film itself. Yeah, which makes it feel like a film that was made with a little more distance than it actually has. Yeah, it's wild that it was made one year after the war is over. <laughs> to be actually making this right as history is happening. 
and kind of viewing it in a more historical context already. And yeah, I don't even know that some of those riots weren't actual footage of riots. Yeah, I was wondering how you got that footage. There's thousands of actors just all, I guess, are just like actual riots. And it's almost shocking how close it takes place to the actual war, considering it takes this long historical view of the rise of, you could say, fascism or imperialism in Japan, the resistance against it, and then the end of the war, where, you know, imperialism failed. I think they even say something like that. They say something along those lines very bluntly, like, yep, that didn't work. Yeah, I was shocked that it, like, wasn't censored or that it was just, like, allowed to be made freely, even if it wasn't that subversive. It was just, it feels like it would have been a touchy subject at the time, but he, he made it. In Kurosawa's autobiography, he actually talked about showing this to American censors, and he said they didn't really pay a lot of attention until the end. At the end, they were totally enraptured with it. Oh, good. I love the introduction of Yuki with all these students, how she's the only one in white and everyone else is in black, and it's all these guys and, like, skipping through the, the stream and all that. Beautiful picnic on a hill with seven dudes. <laughs> well, I guess are all the leaders of the free speech resistance and are therefore probably the closest students to her father, who is like the figurehead of this kind of subversive resistance movement within the university system. But yeah, Yuki just really just having a good time, chilling, like laughing as guns go off and says, oh man, I, I love the guns. Like that rhythm really gets me going. As someone gets shot like right next to them, 10 feet from her. <laughs> Kurosawa really drives home how disconnected she is from politics, from the concerns of the world. <laughs> when she hears the gun, she's like, oh, cool. That this man could be shot right next to her to have her actually face the reality of what's happening and not really be able to comprehend it. It just doesn't make any sense to her. Yeah, that's probably the first moment in her life that she has to do that. Yeah, for like the whole first act, it really doesn't click until, you know, people start getting arrested and her father is fired. And when Noge comes back, uh, Noge, we, we should discuss him. Played by uh, Susumu Fujita, Sanshiro Sugata, the podcast himbo. Is now no longer dumb, but an incredibly hot leftist who's super cool. And I love him so much. Yeah, just when we thought he couldn't get any hotter. Yeah, Noge uh, rules in this movie. He is like the only one committed to the movement of uh, free speech and anti-imperialism. He wears glasses. His glasses change over time to reflect that he has got older and wiser and hotter. To show that time had passed. Every once in a while, he like will laugh and he'll look just like Sinjiro Sugata again. Just the actor just can't help it. His laugh just makes him look friendly and unbecoming. It's almost disarming, just the way he smiles. I get scared whenever he grabs Setsukohara. I'm like, haven't you heard the song? Don't get near Sanjiro, he'll accidentally kill you. <laughs> Don't touch Sanjiro, he'll fucking kill you. <laughs> There's like that other song that people were singing about Mount Yoshida. It has like the same tune as the Sanjiro Sugata song. Kurosawa really likes having just people singing, like just groups of people singing about what's going on in the movie. <laughs> yeah, we need to bring that back into modern day culture. Yeah, just like semi-diegetic Greek choruses <laughs> commenting on the events of the film as they happen. There is technically two guys. Yeah, but, th but there's only one. There's only one guy in my heart and one guy in her heart. But there's like Noge, the absolute Chad leftist. And the other guy is Itakawa, the just, I mean, I hate to say it, but just the absolute cuck. Just like... <laughs> Yeah, he really is a cuck character. At every given moment, just completely just, just cucked by the by the government, by... Yukiya literally tells him, hey, can you get on your knees and apologize to me? And he's like, why? And she just says, just do it. And then he does. Yeah, I know, that seems so <laughs> like, weird. And then she's like, stop! And I'm like, you just told him to do that. Why? A side note, I love the way that they do that, because they don't actually show him kneel. We're just like in this close-up of Setsuko Hara. Yeah, you just see her. One of the absolute amazing talents of Japanese cinema. Absolutely. She's such an amazing actress. And I, I, I love that, like just this beautiful close-up of her. And you just watching her eyes slowly go down as this dude, like this cuck, just gets on his knees to apologize for doing absolutely nothing. And then just gets yelled at again. With the two of these dudes, two different ways of approaching politics. And life, yeah. 
Noge's like, I got nothing to lose. I have to fight for this. And Itakawa is like, I have to take care of my mom. And he's kind of a slave to the status quo a bit because he can't really take that kind of risk. Yeah, he becomes a prosecutor. He becomes a cop. He sells out. He starts working for the government. And there's that really awkward scene with them when she kind of realizes it. And it's like, he's not like vilified for it, but she's just like, ugh. It's too bad that he had to go that way. Yeah, he's definitely not the villain in the film. Yeah, I wouldn't say that there's any villain in the film. It's kind of just society. This is really uh, Kurosawa's Joker. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, <laughs> Yuki Yakahara definitely is the Joker in this film, <laughs> except she's the Joker for, like, leftist peasantry <laughs> idolization. But yeah, no, I mean, that's... Yes. So that, that's really the beginning of the film is just exploring the relationship between these two or three people. And then Noge comes back from prison and he just seems very chill. He's just smoking and he's like, yeah, well, you know, I was forced to renounce leftism and I, I cringe thinking about that. That's all behind me. And that actually like, seems to be the thing that really upsets UK. Yeah, it's, it's kind of scary. It's like he's brainwashed. I don't believe him, but there is the chance that it actually did work. Yeah, the professor sees right through it, but Yukie, like, really freaks her out. I mean, she immediately runs away, starts crying in her room for, like, the 1,000th time. As she does, yeah. He leaves, she says goodbye, and is sad about it. And then immediately after that, moves to Tokyo. <laughs> that is really, like, a breaking point in her, is, I guess, just seeing Noge give up on his political views, even though that wasn't something she cared about. I think just seeing what can happen to a person, even if it's not actually true, but seeing, like, how a person can be broken by the system kind of messed her up. Yeah, I don't think that it's not something that she cares about. I think it's something that she didn't realize she cared about. That, like, having this independent freedom. And she realizes, I don't have a real life. She is totally detached from everything. She only knows these people ostensibly through her father. Because they just keep showing up at her house. And she just, like, you know what? I'm just gonna move to Tokyo and get a job. She does it, and she's like, oh, wait... Uh, having freedom is miserable. Yeah, uh, as we all learn. She hates her job. She hates what she's doing. And then she runs into Itakawa. And then she finds out like, oh, he's married, has a kid on the way, and is now working for the government. And then she also learns in that conversation that Noge's in town and just immediately like gets quiet and is like, oh, <laughs> Noge's back from China. And then starts stalking him for what is implied to be months in the film by the change in weather. In one of many montages in this movie, which I feel like has the most overuse in this movie, I think because he's covering so much time. Yeah, it's definitely overused because Kurosawa is just flexing. There's like two really weird moments when she's at the door debating whether or not to go say goodbye to them. It overlays her in like five different positions at the door. Oh yeah, that was cool. It's so weird. She's like, her so arms weird. are like splayed out. And then another one, she's like the thinker. And like all this stuff. That was like experimental. That was nuts. I, I love that. I was like, what's going on? I know. It's like a weird Einstein-esque touch that he doesn't really do that often. Later on, she falls down the stairs. And the camera just gets slammed at the ground. Five different shots of like of the yeah. camera like hurtling towards Earth. <laughs> there was like a lot of little experimental touches like that that were interesting. I don't really know what they added, but yes, it's worth pointing out. They were odd, and I feel like some of Kurosawa's other techniques are more on hold. There wasn't as much of, like, an environmental stuff going on. Yeah, there was a lot of rain and stuff occasionally, but... There was the stream that, you know, she crosses in the beginning, and then it's on the other side of at the end. You know, that's like, a, you know, an easy symbol of time passing and things that keep on moving no matter what, even if she's staying stagnant and all that. Yeah, there's some cloud stuff. There wasn't too much, like, camera movement. There was a, a fair amount. It's a little bit more of like an Ozu-esque story, you know, like especially like being locked in like a house. 
for so much time. It looks and feels more like an Ozu film throughout the entire movie than it does like a later Kurosawa film. But, you know, that's probably just him drawing inspiration and trying out what he wants to do. That, that's just him having to shoot inside. <laughs> yeah, I'm being forced to. But, you know, there's a lot of that. I mean, lots of framing shots, just like shots in which everything is perfectly, beautifully, symmetrically <laughs> lined up and stuff like that. It, it did actually feel like a very Ozu in nature. But anyway, we were kind of following along with the plot. She stalks Noge, and then in a scene that I actually laughed out loud at, she keeps debating whether or not to go in to see Noge, and then happens to walk by her in the street, takes his hat off, and is like, hey. And then it just cuts to her in his house. Yeah, I mean, that's where I would end up. It's just so obvious that they're going to, like, get married, or at least hook up in that scene. It was extremely funny. They don't say hi or anything. He just looks at her, and then she's in his house. Yeah, what else does he need? He's Sanshiro Sugata. He's the hottest young leftist in Tokyo. <laughs> He's the new hotness, yeah. That scene in the house, or I guess the apartment, was also very strange. Like a 30 second pause where there's like sexual tension between them. They turn the light on and I actually really like the lighting effect there and he becomes a shadow on the wall. Yeah, that's so cool. Kind of complaining. It was all it was all like really nicely done. Just like a very expressionist, very cool scene. Yeah, and then from there it turns into like another montage where we're going through all these like really quick moments where she never seems to really be that happy, but insists that she is. She's my ex. But um, <laughs> yeah, she like... We'll be happy with him for, like, five seconds, and then he'll just, like, not pay attention to her for a minute, and then she'll start bawling, just, like, freaking out. There's that one scene where they're in the movie theater, and everyone's laughing, and he's laughing, and she's, like, disgusted, and I'm like, I really want to know what they're looking at. I think they were watching Sanchiro Sugata Part 2. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very possible. <laughs> she's like, these characters are all <laughs> awfully developed. This plot doesn't make any sense, and we're like, yo, this is sick. This sucks, though. <laughs> yeah, Sanjiro's sure like, this is so funny. Look at me laugh up there. Big goofball. But yeah, that was the, the happy couple montage. This is like a transitionary period where she's still kind of figuring herself out, and she's no longer the, like, completely vapid young girl, but she, like, also is struggling as a wife and modern woman. Yeah, she just hasn't found her place. She wasn't really groomed to know how to do anything or to go in any sort of direction. I think there might also be a little bit of jealousy in that Noge's path is pretty clear, and he's a man who knows what he wants. Yeah, it's, he's just so determined. Yeah, he's got a direction to move in, and she just doesn't as a tale of a woman. Another thing where, like, this is another one of Kurosawa's early female leads, and, I mean, he got the best one that he could possibly have gotten for it. Yeah. She's an incredibly good character. She goes through so much change over the course of the film, and the performance is just amazing. All portrayed amazingly by Satsukahara. I was actually, I was, I was kind of mad at her, this part, where he's like, you shouldn't marry me, I'm gonna make your life so hard, I could be arrested any minute, and she's like, no, I'm willing to go through this, and then the next shot is her being like, I'm so distraught all the time, you could be taken away at any moment, I'm making this kimono for you, maybe you'll never wear it, and crying, and he's like, oh my god, this is what you agreed to. Yeah, it definitely feels rushed, and it feels like we maybe could have taken some, you know, maybe cut some stuff out from earlier scenes, and focused it a little bit more here, to feel Noge's loss more. You don't feel too much when he's gone, he's more of an idea than a character. Yeah, they don't linger on it. He dies at night. Noge gets arrested. And then there's this weird, once again, a prison montage or whatever, where she is very faithfully not giving up his secrets. Not that she really knows them. Yeah, by design, she doesn't know them. And Takashi Shimura shows up. Takashi Shimura does show up. I was thinking he might be the same character from The Most Beautiful. <laughs> just like another government worker or something. That's possible. Yeah. He's like the bad cop who is really just like slimy and smoking. And he's like... Yeah, well, you know what? You know what's gonna happen to him, and then just like puts his hand over his throat. I assume to mean he's gonna die, which he does. Yeah, to, to uh, apparently commit suicide in jail despite being behind uh, armed guards. Yeah, he's gonna, you know, 
he's gonna kneel <laughs> in there in that overcrowded prison like i don't know everyone would have seen it but anyway <laughs> no gay did not kill himself no gay didn't kill himself <laughs> that's so funny so yuki yagahara realizes in kyoto that she's not really you know a real person she goes to tokyo off to you know be a real person and discover herself and then she learns that in tokyo she's not really a real person and the real life is to be a peasant <laughs> time to be poor that's what i said when i got my film degree yeah i mean i got a degree in art history so <laughs> look who's talking <laughs> but yeah in a shocking turn of events after Noge's death, Yuki Yagahara decides to essentially just become the daughter of his parents. They are already married, even though that you never actually see them get married. They are married. Yeah, she's like, I'm his wife. I'm like, are you? I can't tell. Like, I, I, th- I think they are. I think it's supposed to be. We just don't see the wedding at all. All you see is he just says, our life will be hard. And she says, I know. And like in the next scene, I think they're already married. And she's like outside his hallway or whatever. Like, hey, how are you doing? And so she brings his ashes to his parents who were rice farmers and because he was executed or died in prison quote-unquote for being a spy all of these other rural people hate the family a lot and they're like leaving signs and they can't work during the daytime because they get terrorized there's like graffiti on their home it's really really extreme yeah they're completely ostracized it's like shockingly bad treatment and it was where to quote the donald ritchie book he says Kurosawa has the strength to say that the poor are not necessarily the better. That the life of poverty is not somehow more real than the life of wealth. Poverty may make brutes, but the men themselves are no less responsible for their own brutishness. Yeah, these are not the noble, humble workers. They don't have a good circumstance. They aren't finding a way to be happy with what they're doing. A lot of these stories, like, there's always a happy farmer. (laughs) Yeah, both the ostracized parents and the, like, awful townspeople are just these rough, mean, bitter people who both, I don't know, they're angry about their circumstances, they are pissed at Noge, and they just they just insult him. They're like, we hate our ungrateful bitch son. Our hot son is dead, and has now totally soiled their family's reputation. Our goddamn hot leftist himbo son has died. <laughs> in a very weird scene, they uh, bury his ashes in a, like, in like a full-size grave <laughs> for a full human body. I know, I'm like, did they think that they were bringing the coffin back, and then, like, are mad that she shows up with just the ashes? I think it was just a way to show that the mother is, like, the hardest woman on earth in terms of manual labor can just dig an entire fucking grave and then refill it. Yeah, she takes a lick and then keeps on digging. She's tough. And the, the dad is, like, a total deadbeat. He won't even look at her. Yeah, the dad, who's, like, Kramer-esque, just, like, is in, like, a coma or something. Like, won't even move. will just sit there in front of the fire and be mad at life. I think it's nice that she starts now learning how to be a rice paddy farmer and works around the clock, working herself to exhaustion to try and I think appease this guy. And the mom has kind of already accepted her to an extent, but she's really trying to prove it to herself. Well, she's resistant at first too. She has to beg to stay there. And the mother's like, you can't do it. No offense. You weren't raised this way. You're not going to be able to do it. It's made very clear that this is going to be supposedly insurmountable for her. But it's not. Yeah, I I couldn't do it. I couldn't, yeah. (laughs) I am Yuki Yagahara at the beginning of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but there's something very moving and like really cool about... Something very Maoist (laughs) about this plot. I think, you know, trying to extrapolate a greater meaning from it rather than like, yeah, I don't want to be the person who just spends all of eternity in the rice paddy farm. But to find and really work hard at something for personal fulfillment is like a really good thing. And it's something that she's been searching for this whole time, but doesn't really realize it. 
and then now she's kind of found it. Except it's it's not what I would have ever expected it to be. She becomes the only noble, humble peasant in the movie by just like working harder than anyone expects her to. Working harder than her body can literally handle. She becomes extremely sick from all this work, but she keeps working through her sickness to the point of further sickness. And you know what? Thinking about watching Setsuko Hara do this versus every other role, like every role she has in an Ozu film. Yeah. It's like, I've never seen her need to wash her hands. And like, boy, like with her in prison and her in the rice field... She is yeah. dirty and, like, exhausted and has, like, a thousand-yard stare. I'm like, wow, I've never seen her do this. Yeah, I thought it was very funny that Akira Kurosawa took the most elegant actress in Japanese history, even though she's, like, kind of for playing working-class people, but just, like, completely covers her in shit. Yeah, he's like, all right, get in. Yeah, get in. You're gonna, you're, she had to, like, actually do the hoeing or whatever of the ground, like, Yeah, she, a little she's bit. still in dirt. Like... Enough for an extremely long montage. <laughs> yeah, a montage that, like, I could not even do this job as long as this montage lasts do you see the graphic match of her hands on the ground becoming the host <laughs> it was extremely i funny. saw the one of her hands over the piano to then her hands being washed in the stream i don't remember the one of the of the hall i might have been taking a note that was good the one of the hose is really funny i think this is when she's begging to stay and they finally say oh, yeah whatever there are two hands on the ground and then it matches with her fingers become the like prongs of the hoe it's like whoa oh, okay what are you trying to say <laughs> But yeah, she takes up the peasant life and is good at it. You know, it almost kills her, but she is good at it. And they literally do an entire rice field. It's like this amazing accomplishment. And you feel really good for her. Until. Unless all of their work is destroyed by the vengeful townspeople getting back at them for being spies. What a reveal. It's horrifying. It really hurts. Why'd you got to do this? Because that's the thing. It's like these people are not in the same boat together. This is rugged individualism right here. It's such a sad thing to see. Yeah, I'm still pulling my political thoughts together with this, but it is definitely heartbreaking. It's brutal. But the one good thing that comes out of the townspeople just viciously destroying their rice paddies that the father comes out of his stupor and actually starts helping to do <laughs> the rice field. Yeah, maybe it was an inside job, honestly, just to get that man to do some fucking work. Yeah. Another montage in there that we skipped over where she goes to get hay from the town and then literally just the most shots of people looking suspiciously at someone off screen that have ever been put together in any film ever. Yeah, all those kids following her down the trail, like Ewoks or something, they're just like, oh, yeah, spy, spy, yeah, spy, 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 Probably the longest montage in the film and like the craziest. The whole film is like a real big of a montage. Yeah, just like everyone in this rural community, just like looking at her, judging her, being spiteful, whispering, talking behind her back. It's brutal. Like, you feel it when you when you watch the film. It's good filmmaking. Yeah, it's great. And then they lick their wounds and get back to it. She collapses and the mother helps, yeah. She comes home and kind of says, yeah, I'm choosing the peasant life and goes back again. And that's how the movie finishes off with her going to be that farmer, like choosing that life over her liberal bourgeois. Yeah, bourgeois life. And I love the mom is like, you were made to suffer, apparently. <laughs> it's like, oof. I, yeah, I, I say that to myself a lot, too, though. Yeah, it's extremely funny. She decides to go back and the mom says, you were made to suffer. And she says, I don't see it that way. This is actually something that's good for me. And I have made myself good at it. And she does get good at it. It's pretty badass. And she's actually the full farmer. Yeah, it's like maybe she could have found a different hobby that would make a little more sense for that message. But I get what he's trying to say. It is hard to express how much she goes from being just the worst, like, brat, flighty, weird, crying all the time to, like, an extremely hard working person who will plant an entire rice field and then do it again. Who will make tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, she is really the person who will make tomorrow. But yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful transformation. That's why it, it, it adds up to being, like, as I said earlier, the first good... No, 
one of the best uh, films that we've seen so far from him, like really tackling this more monumental feeling material. Yeah, I had seen this one a few months ago for the first time, and I'm really glad I did. I felt like I got more out of a rewatch, kind of knowing a little bit more of where it was going. So much goes on. I mean, we're, we're struggling to go through it all. It has a lot of story, probably a little too much, honestly. Yeah, 110 minute film and they pack a lot in. We're starting to really see the future Kurosawa take form in this film, and I think that's super cool. I think the cinematography in the film is great. There's a lot of really great shots. My personal favorite was when she was at the home trying to convince Nogue's parents to work at the rice paddy. The mom and her on both sides and the dad is like bisecting the frame in the middle and he's still in profile to us and he's like facing away from Setsuko Hara. I actually thought that would be your favorite when I saw the shot. I was like, that's such a Tim shot. Yeah, I love that because it's the kind of thing he does all the time and I think it's so simple and so effective Mm -hmm. to just display a character's feelings about another character so externally in a frame. I love that. And she's more in darkness, you know, with everything going on and the mom is more in light. She has so much to like enlighten her on and teach her. It's just really well balanced and I think very impactful. I saw it. I was like, yeah, that's it. No, that makes sense. My favorite shot is kind of like a whole montage, but in the beginning of the film, Yukie is going on this picnic with all these men and there's just shot after shot of these amazingly framed nature shots and the characters just kind of going through them. So the one that I formally picked is one where the camera is on a riverbed and it's like right just like an inch above the river looking at them as they cross the river. And it's beautifully done. It's literally perfectly divided. Half the shots of the river, half the shots of the mountains with like a little bit of sky peeking through. And this is kind of what all the shots are like in this whole montage of just like Ozu level, perfectly framed stuff all around the characters, but they're in the middle and it just looks gorgeous. I don't know what it says about the film, but it's just nice filmmaking. I was like, wow, that's so close. Yeah. <laughs> that camera is basically just in the water. <laughs> that whole opening montage is actually just totally gorgeous. I wish I could have picked some other frames from it too. I feel that. I really loved whatever they did at that river. Overall, I'll say that the film isn't one of my favorites in the grand scheme of Kurosawa. I liked it more this time than I did last time. I just don't find it as, like, entertaining as some of those, but that's more of, like, a personal thing. I think the film itself is really well done. It's a great movie, just, like, not what you normally look for in a Kurosawa film. I'm going to give No Regrets for Our Youth an 8 out of 10. On the four-star scale, we'd give it a three and a half. That's my favorite scale. <laughs> Suck on that. <laughs> If you're going to check out one pre-Toshiro Mifune Kurosawa, I would probably say this one or the original Sanchiro Sugata. Kind of depends. I have plenty of regrets for my youth. Oh, me too. But watching this movie isn't one of them. It's probably the most political we're ever going to see him. Well, I guess probably the last one was like the most political. Well, which is not his forte. We're going to see him get political in other ones like I Live in Fear or Scandal. Again, he doesn't really care about that kind of stuff, like politics as politics. He cares about how people deal with their problems. And in some of these films, their problems are politics. I think that that's a crucial distinction to make for him. I don't know anything about his next film. I've never seen it. I don't even know if I've seen a frame of One Wonderful Sunday. So I have no clue what we're really getting into with that. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, we'll be back next week with One Wonderful Sunday. Mm